Mansfield is to lead us in the sixth study of the outline of the prophecy of Isaiah under the heading Prophecies of Redemption. To introduce this we're going to read together Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 to 11 and Brother Mark O'Grady will lead us in that reading. Outline of the prophecy of Isaiah, Prophecies of Redemption. We'll be pleased to hear Brother Mansfield. This morning, brethren and sisters, we consider the last few chapters of the prophecy of Isaiah that take us into the prophecies of redemption and consummation. We've set out before you on this transparency the three divisions of this section. First of all, the supremacy of Yahweh, verses 40 to 40, chapters 40 to 48. Then the suffering servant of Yahweh, chapters 49 to 57. And finally, the promised future of Yahweh in chapters 58 to 66. And in those verses that we read this morning from this 40th chapter, verses 1 to 11, we have the general theme of the whole section. We have expressed therein the gospel of redemption, as announced and assured. We have in those words of verse 6, the voice said, cry, or proclaim, or preach, And he said in response, What shall I cry? And the answer is, All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of Yahweh bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And that's the great theme that must introduce the prophecies of redemption and consummation. It's essential that we understand flesh for what it is before we can enjoy the redemption that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And basic to the preaching of the gospel message is the fact that we must proclaim that flesh is grass and the goodliness thereof is as the flower of grass The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of Yahweh bloweth upon it. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And it shall stand forever because of the supremacy of Yahweh our God. Now we're dividing this section up into three parts. The first section. First of all, we have the supremacy of Yahweh and we find that he is incomparable, first of all, in his creative power. So first of all, we consider him in the supremacy of his, his very attributes. And the first of these is his creative power. And in that 40th chapter, verse 12, the question is asked, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure? and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who's done that, or who can equal him in that? And the first principle of our understanding of the purpose of Almighty God is to recognize his supremacy, to understand who he is. The first declaration to Israel was, of course, Hear, O Israel, 
Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. And thou shalt love Yahweh thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. And the Lord said, this is the first command. So we cannot understand the purpose of God, nor can we worship a right, unless we comprehend the supremacy of Yahweh, unless we understand that. And here at this inception, the question is asked, in regard to creation and the magnitude of creation, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, meted out heaven as a span, comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in the balance? Who has done it? Who has created this earth in all its majesty? Who has created the heavens above? Who holds those, uh, those uh, stars into position? Who holds the planets tied to the sun? These mighty bodies that hurl themselves through space at incredible speed. Who controls it all? Where is the majesty of him? And how large are we are in his estimation? And that's the first consideration that we should understand. And the declaration of Almighty God to the people of Israel is, Thou shalt love Yahweh thy God. And if we love anyone, we desire others to share that love and consideration with us. And we will never love anyone unless we properly understand them. And hence, we must come to understand him more. And even creation, you know, teaches us of the majesty of Yahweh. We find the earth, for example, beautifully designed for life. The exact dimensions and weight and contents are designed to that end. And everything that we see, we find the hand of a creator there designing it for that end. As we are told in the 45th of Isaiah and verse 18, he created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. And as we are told in Proverbs chapter 8, in wisdom he hath made it all. And as we are told in Numbers 14 and verse 21, as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh. And as we look at the heavens above and we see the glory there, we know because we are assured that the one that created that has the ability to fill this earth with glory. And one day it will be filled with his glory. And you know, there's a wonderful psalm that is worthy of consideration in that regard. It's the 19th psalm. It commences with a statement. The, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth showeth his handiwork. Whilst it's true that that psalm is prophetic of the future, it's also true that it describes creation itself. And it draws attention to the majesty of creation in the heavens and the wonder of it all. Because when you look into the heavens, you know, you cannot plumb space. The further you think, the further you can go. The bigger the telescope, the further you can probe. And there's no end to it. And you can go out of an evening and you can look into the, into the darkness of the heavens and you can imagine what's beyond space and what's beyond that. And as you do that, you can almost send yourself mad thinking about what is behind there and behind there and behind there. And there's no in, end to it. You're looking into infinity. And you know that psalm, when it has described the glory of the heavens, suddenly breaks off and it draws attention to this book before us. And it shows that in its way, that book is just as, just as majestic, just as wonderful as the heavens above. And as you cannot plumb the depths of the heavens above, you can't plumb the depths of that book either. 
There's never been a man upon this earth except the Lord Jesus Christ that is able to exhaust that book. And you cannot reach to the depths of it, no matter how much you study it, no more than you can the heavens above. And it's as marvellous as the heavens above, though scientists may not think so. And the Psalm, Psalm 19, describes that. We have there the majesty of Yahweh in that way. Now, he's not only incomparable in creative power, but he's incomparable in his underived wisdom. And here we have that stated in verses 13 and 14 there. Who hath directed the spirit of Yahweh? Who hath been his counsellor and hath taught him? With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him? And who taught him in the path of judgment? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Who did that? Nobody, of course. There is underived wisdom in the great increate. And you know, the Apostle Paul, when he had considered the things concerning the revelation of Almighty God, and when he had outlined all that he intends to do as far as Israel is concerned, and how he has drawn the Gentiles into the same covenant of mercy, the Apostle Paul says this in the 11th chapter of Romans, verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counsellor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For out of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And when one contemplates the majesty of the Creator, as revealed in the book before us, and the wonder of his purpose, we can see that he is underived in that wisdom. And the wisdom is superb. It's above all else. It's incomparable. We cannot compare it with anything else, as the Apostle Paul says in that 11th chapter of Romans. So he is incomparable in underived wisdom. He's also incomparable in power. And he invites us to consider that. We have it in verses 15 and 16 of that chapter. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and as counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a bird offering. The nations are as a drop of a bucket. It's like a person carrying a bucket of water along, and one drop goes out. Do you notice the difference? No difference at all. And the nations are like that in the sight of Almighty God. He's incomparable in his power in that regard. You know, I've got a book home and it's called The Search for Peace. It was a book that was put out just before World War II. It was put out when Chamberlain went to Munich, when he signed that paper with Hitler, if you know anything about it. Chamberlain, the uh, Prime Minister of England, went to uh, Munich and signed a peace with Hitler and he came back to England waving this piece of uh, paper and saying, we have peace in our time. So they brought out this book. It was a part publication. It got a part every week. And it's called A Search for Peace. And the first copy said that he was the saviour of peace. He's brought peace in our time. And it was praising up Chamberlain. Before the book was published, the world was at war. Before the book was published. Now inside that book, it traced the development of Hitler. A one big, uh, big uh, 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 photo spread across two pages. Had Hitler reviewing his troops. And you saw those Germans all standing up like this 
thousands of them in the square and Hitler's there in front of them and they got their hands out like that and it's the personification of fleshly power. You see them all at attention there, all ready to fight, all ready to fight at the whim of one man and their hands are outstretched and his hands are outstretched there and there's Hitler and fight they did and rotted in the wilderness of Europe. That's what they did. But it's a personification of fleshly power. But here we have something, the nations are a drop of a bucket. Where's Hitler today? Where's all that he stood for today? Gone. And all that we know today will be gone tomorrow. But he will remain. And the nations is a drop of a bucket. And Lebanon as nothing. Nothing at all. In comparison with his incomparable power. And you know, as we consider that flesh is grass, we've got to understand the deity for what he is in all the majesty that is revealed in his word. He's incomparable in his unchallenged supremacy in verse 17. Because all nations before him as nothing and they are counted to him as less than nothing and vanity. And vanity. So all the nations, whatever they are, with all their power, there they are accounted to him as absolute nothing and merely as vanity. So you see, he is incomparable in his unchallenged supremacy and in his power. He's incomparable as an object of worship. So we have the statement in verse 18. To whom then will ye liken God or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that he will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have you not heard? Have it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth the incomparable power of Almighty God that you should chop down a tree and worship that? And you know, today people are doing just the same as that. You know, the Apostle Paul says in the fourth chapter of Colossians that covetousness is idolatry. And people are bowing down today to their idols of gold and silver. But the time's going to come when they're going to throw those away. And they're going to shake for the majesty of that one that's going to be revealed in the earth. But in the meantime, covetousness is an idolatry. And people are engaged in that form of idolatry today. Yahweh is incomparable in his omniscience, in his all-seeing power. So you'll have it in verse 22 onwards. Is it, it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not, shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. So Isaiah sees him seated upon the circle of the earth, not the earth where we're on, but that great circle around which the world revolves as it takes its yearly revolution around the sun. And there beyond that is Almighty God, so high, so lifted up, that he looked down and see all that is down there below him. So he is incomparable in his omniscience. He sees everything that happens. 
So you see, there he is in power and wisdom, and there he is in his supremacy and as an object of worship, and in his omniscience, and also in his ability and his will to help us. So you have that in chapter 41 and verses 1 to 14, where he speaks in verses two, verse 2, who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, made him rule over kings, gave them as the dust to his sword, and as driven stubble to his bow. He pursued them and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, the first, and with the last, I, he. That is the one that has done it. I, Yahweh, the first, and with the last, I, he, and the word last there is in the plural, were the last ones, the development of a community that are going to reveal the power of Almighty God as he sets forth that power in that way. So you'll have it in that ver fourth verse. I, Yahweh, the first one, and with the last ones, I, he. And we have the manifestation of Yahweh in first the Lord Jesus Christ, and finally, the brethren of Christ. And there we have it expressed in those terms. He's incomparable in his omniscience. He's in, so we read in, verse, uh, in chapter 41 and verses 17 and 20, When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue fileth them for thirst, I, Yahweh, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water, and so forth. I will do it, he said. Verse 20, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of Yahweh hath done this and the Holy One of Israel hath created it. So he invites us to look around creation, to consider our own way of life, to see his hand moulding our lives as we can if we look inward concerning, in, in regard to our own life. And finally, he's incomparable in his revelation. And so we have it in verses 22 and 23 of that 40, 40's first chapter. Let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they shall be, that we may consider them, and know the latter end of them, or declare us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods. Yea, do good, do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. In other words, Yahweh there says, if they are gods, let them reveal the future. Can they reveal the future? Can any man reveal the future? He cannot. But Almighty God does, and we have it in his prophetic pages, that he does reveal the future. If these gods are gods of power, let them do good or evil, that people may know that they are gods of power. They do nothing. But God can, and he works in our lives, and he works in our lives in such a way as to do us good, if we will hearken unto his word. And there we have the power of Almighty God. You know, on one occasion I was addressing a quite a large company of people back in Adelaide and it was what they called a challenge night. People could stand up and challenge what anything based upon the word of God. And someone got up and they said to me, they said, I want you to tell me why you believe the Bible is inspired. 
And I said, look, I'm sorry, that's a question that I really cannot express. I can't tell you the answer to that question. If you had asked me to give you reasons why the Bible is inspired, I could have directed your attention to the prophetic word and showed how that God has foretold things that have come to pass. I could have shown you the way in which this wonderful book that we have is moulded together as one so that there's one consistent message throughout. I could show you the wisdom of this book and reveal to you by that means I think that God designed it. But that's not your question. You want to know why I believe it is inspired. And that I've found I cannot express to you. Because I believe that this book is inspired because of its impact upon my life. Because of what it has done for me. And that I find it completely impossible for me to put in words. All I can say to you, I said, is what David says in the Psalms, taste and see that Yahweh is good. And that indeed is the fact as far as this is concerned. Let them, let those gods do good or do evil, he says, concerning the idols. And let any philosophy of today do us any good at all, apart from that book. And it's absolutely impossible. But with this book, we have the promise of life as it now is, as well as that which is to come. And because of the power of that book, and because of the very joy of life that that book induces in one, when one bases his life upon that book, we know that that book is inspired, and we know that God is real and true. We don't have to see God. We feel him in our lives, and we recognize God for what he is. So first of all, we must understand that all flesh is grass. And understanding that all flesh is grass, we must understand the supremacy of that one that we're going to worship, and we must first of all see that he is incomparable in his attributes. You can go to nowhere to find anything to compare with God in the various attributes there. When you are in trouble, you can turn to God with every confidence that he will help. When you are in difficulties, when you're puzzled and problem, you can find a solace from Almighty God. And though you may not escape that trouble, you will find the power to lift yourself above that trouble. And that often is a far greater experience than having that trouble removed. Because when you go through a trouble, when you surmount it with the aid of Almighty God, you have a confidence in yourself that you can, in the future, face any other trouble that might arise. So there he is, incomparable in his attributes. Secondly, Secondly, he is incomparable in his redemption. In the provision of a righteous servant that he has provided for us. And every trust and confidence can be placed in Almighty God because he has the wisdom to know what is required and the power and ability to perform it. So you see, first of all, he is incomparable in his redemption because of his provision of a righteous servant. And you have that in the 42nd chapter. Notice chapter 42 and verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And if the supremacy of Yahweh is revealed in his incomparable creative power, underived wisdom, power and supremacy, is not that all manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Those who will not we see in the provision of this righteous servant the in, that Yahweh is incomparable in his work of redemption. It's absolutely essential to his work of redemption. He is incomparable in his personal and national redemption. So we go to verses 11 and 12 of that same chapter and we read, Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice. The villages that Kedah doth inhabit, let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them, uh, let them uh, uh, shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto Yahweh and declare his praise in the isles thereof. So there we have a, a national redemption. When we come to verse 16, we have a personal one. I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. You know, Yahweh does that for us, doesn't he? He reveals the way before us. He opens our eyes to facts. We see things that the world's blind to. And he reveals that to us. And as we see these things, and as the scales fall from our eyes, as they did from the eyes of Paul in Damascus, as that happens to us, and we see with clarity the purpose of Almighty God, we are lifted up in the way of uh, righteousness because of that which he has done for us in that way. So he's incomparable in his redemption, in personal and national redemption. And even in the vindication of his righteousness. So in verse 21 we read these words, Yahweh is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it honourable. And that's what he did with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as far as the Lord Jesus Christ was concerned, he perfectly fulfilled the law. And because he perfectly fulfilled the law, the grave could not hold him. He magnified the law and made it honourable. He set before us the principle whereby that law may be fulfilled. And he set before us the ideal in that regard. How did he do it? Did he do it in his own power? Was it the matter of the assertion of flesh that was able to conquer as the Lord did? By no means. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did in sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemning sin in the flesh. God did it. That is what the Apostle Paul did. It was impossible for human nature to accomplish it. But God did it in the son of, of his provision. He made him strong, we are told in Psalm 80 and verse 17. So he is incomparable in vindication of his righteousness and also in the restoration of Israel. Here is the manifestation of his great power in the restoration of Israel. So we read in the 43rd chapter, verses 1 and 2, But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by my name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. Through the rivers, they will not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. And Israel, after the flesh, has been brought through the waters that would drown it. It's been brought through the fire which would consume it. 
but it hasn't been drowned and it hasn't been consumed and it's back in the land today. And it's a vindication of the supremacy of Yahweh who is incomparable in his redemption. And you know what he says through Ezekiel the prophet? He says, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. You have profaned my name, therefore I do not do it for your sake, but for my holy name's sake which you have profaned. And therefore I will bring you out of the countries and bring you back into your own land. And I do it for my holy name's sake. Which means that as we see that nation today in the land and know the people that, that inhabit that nation, that they crucified the Son of God, that they turned their backs upon his teaching, and yet they're back in the land because God is true to his promise, we can put every confidence in any promise that Almighty God might make. We can do so with every confidence. And therefore, in the restoration of Israel, there is the vindication of his status as a redeemer. If he has redeemed Israel, he can bring us from the grave. He can give us life eternal. And his uh, redemption, of course, is incomparable in his redemption because of forgiveness. And he alone is capable of forgiving. And so we have it in those chapters there. And when we turn to the 44th chapter of Isaiah, and at verse 5, we read, I am Yahweh, and there is none else. I am Yahweh, and no uh, but, uh, and there is no God beside me. I girded thee, thou thou hast not known me. And verses 21 to 23, Tell ye, and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this? I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. I thought it was. At 40, chapter 44, 21 to 23. Chapter 44, and verse 4. <coughs> one shall say I am Yahweh's uh, verse 5 this is one shall say I am Yahweh's and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob and another shall subscribe with his hand under Yahweh and surname himself with the name of Israel now you see here he, he is forgiving Gentiles and bringing them within the compass of the truth so that Gentiles now call themselves Israel one calls himself of Yahweh, another by the name of Jacob, another su su subscribes with his hands under Yahweh and surnames himself by the name of Israel. They could claim to be the true Israel of God. And so in verse 21, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee. Thou art my servant, O Israel, that thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out in a thick cloud thy transgression, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. <clears throat> and what are the sins of Israel? What have they done? As I said before, they crucified his son. <clears throat> they've turned their backs upon his teaching. They've repudiated his ways. But the mercy of God is incomparable. He is prepared to do anything that he might redeem his people. And you know, in the uh, Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that God commendeth his love toward us, that when we were enemies, he, Christ, died for us. So that when God calls upon us to love our enemies, he does not call upon us to do something that he has not done himself. He himself, in his extension of uh, salvation to us, has redeemed his enemies. 
And we who were once the enemies of Almighty God have been drawn nigh by His power and forgiven by His mercy. So He's incomparable in His power to forgive. And finally, He's incomparable in the provision of a deliverer. So we have it in the 45th chapter of Isaiah. And at verse 1, where Cyrus is represented as typical of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 11, Thus saith Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness. I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city. He shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith Yahweh Sabaoth. So there we have the provision of a mighty deliverer, deliverer who will accomplish the purpose of Almighty God in every way, who has been raised up in righteousness, whose paths have been directed, who shall build my city, who shall let go my captives and bring even Gentiles to the foot of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, in understanding that flesh is grass, we must understand the supremacy of Yahweh, that he is incomparable in his attributes, he's incomparable in his work of redemption. And not only that, but he's also incomparable in retribution. And we need to bear that in mind. First of all, in his power to save or his power to destroy. And we find in the 46th chapter of Isaiah and verse 1 how that he destroys false religion. Bell boweth down, Nebo stupid. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaded. Uh, they are a burden to the weary beast. And here he describes how the idols of Babylon shall be overthrown. And on the basis of that, he says in verse 5, To whom would he liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? They lavish gold out of the bag, away silver in the balance, and hire a goldsmith and make it to the God and fall down and worship it. As I said before, they do the same thing today. So that in chapter 46 you see those idols rendered useless in the face of the world problems at that particular time. The gods of Babylon could not save Babylon. Neither will the gods of this age save this age. They'll cast their idols of gold and silver of Babylon the Great in chapter 47 here. So he is mighty in comparison with the limitations of Babylon. In chapter 47 and verse 1, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There's no throne left for you. And in verse 11, Therefore shall evil come upon thee. Thou shalt not know from whence it riseth, and mischief shall fall upon thee. Thou shalt not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which thou shalt not know. And the Pope is building up for that at the present moment. They're going forth, they're building up their power. Who's going to destroy the papacy? Who can possibly make war with him? Is the statement of the book of Revelation when he's aligned with the dragon power of Constantinople. Well, here's the answer. 
Evil shall come upon thee, and you won't know from whence it ariseth. Mischief shall fall upon thee, and you will not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which you shall not know. And you see, as far as uh, that is concerned, Babylon will be overthrown. And then in place of Babylon, there will be the new heavens and the new earth. So there is the provision of a new heavens and a new earth in 48th chapter of Isaiah. And finally, you have the guarantees of future care in that same chapter and in verses 20 to 21. Go ye forth of Babylon, flee ye from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing, declare ye, tell this, utter it even to the ends of the earth, and say, Yahweh hath redeemed his servant Jacob. And they thirsted not when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow out of the rocks for them. He claimed the rock also, and the waters gush out. There is no peace, saith Yahweh, unto the wicked. And there we have that aspect of uh, this section of Isaiah covered. The first aspect, as we have it on the transparency, the supremacy of Yahweh. So the prophet has said that all flesh is grass and is the flower of grass that fades away. And in com comparison with that, we have the supremacy of Yahweh, supreme in his attributes, supreme in his work of retribution, supreme in his and his, uh, and his mission in Isaiah chapter 49. So the prophet says, Listen unto me, and hearken ye people from far. Yahweh hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name, and he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and maybe a polished shaft in his quiver hath he hid me. And he hath said, Thou art my servant, O Yahweh, uh, o, o Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Thou art my servant, O Israel. He is the ideal Israelite, is the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is not sufficient. In verse 6, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, in that particular chapter, the Lord Jesus Christ is described as his servant. What is a servant? <coughs> what is a servant, a bond servant or a slave? Where would we define a servant? Well, here's a definition. A servant is one who submerges his will in that of another. So no longer does his will matter because he submerges his will and that of another. He submerges his will and that of his master. So the Lord Jesus Christ, as the suffering servant of Yahweh, is submerging his will in that of the Father. He said, not my will, but thine be done. His strength and victory was manifested in so doing. And we're told by the Apostle Paul in the second chapter of the Philippians, to the, uh, of the epistle to the Philippians, concerning the uh, servitude of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the apostle says, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not a thing to be grasped at, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of a man, and being found in fashion of a, as a, 
a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Now let that mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. And when the Apostle Paul, that freeborn Roman, wrote to the brethren of Rome, he did not write, Paul, a freeborn Roman. He wrote, Paul, a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. And the freeborn Roman gloried rather in his servitude to Christ rather than that which he had been given by Rome. And you see, we find as far as the servant is concerned, it's one who has subjected himself to the will of another. Now we have it in the suffering servant and we have it in the willing submission of that one to, uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, to his father in the heavens. His willing submission in chapter 50. And so in that 50th chapter he says in verse 5, Yahweh hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. There we have his mission to his father. We have it in his deliverance of Israel, where we come to the 51st chapter onwards. In his deliverance of Israel, and finally in his work of redemption, to which we want to refer to more specifically. So, we bring this transparency. And in this section here, we have, first of all, four servant songs relating to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are songs that are set in the uh, chapters of Isaiah. They commence at chapter 42, verses 1 to 4, where you will find his character is referred to. And in the little song, his character is there, verses 1 to 4. We read, A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking black shall he not quench, till he hath brought forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isle shall wait for his law. The Lord Jesus Christ was no political agitator. He didn't go through the streets agitating. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets, we read in verse 2. He was very gentle with people. A bruised reed shall he not break and a smoking fact shall he not quench. So when he saw the slightest sign of life, he sort of tried to bring it into flame. He didn't quench it. He didn't destroy it. He was very careful how he handled Peter, people. Take his treatment of Peter, for example. How he cared for Peter. How he brought him out. How he told him, when thou art strengthened, strengthen, converted, strengthen your brethren. I've prayed for you, Peter. See the gentle way he treated people on all sides so that when there was any semblance of truth, the Lord brought that out until the smoking, uh, the smoking flax became burning with the light of truth and the bruised reed, instead of being destroyed completely, was strengthened to stand up. And that one that was so gentle in those ways shall not fail nor be discouraged 
till he hath set judgment in the earth, and the oil shall wait for his law. A thing that the politicians today can never do, he will accomplish. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, but the politicians of today will fail, and will be discouraged, not the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you see, you have there the character of the Lord. In the 49th chapter of Isaiah, and verses, uh, verses uh, 1 to 6, you have his call, where it speaks of his call, to which we made reference earlier before. The call that was made to him, and the, the ministry to which he was called. It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved of Israel. I will give you as a light to the Gentiles. And that is what he is to this day. Then the third song speaks of his qualifications in the 50th chapter and at verses 4 to 9. And his submission to his father. And finally you have his vindication in chapter 52 and uh, onwards. And as far as that is concerned, we want to just have a look at briefly at this. Second, 51st and 52nd chapter. Because in chapter 51, you have three appeals to the people. I haven't time to develop that, as you understand, and this is just an outline study. But I'll show you the three appeals so that you can follow it through. Those three appeals are, uh, are uh, prefaced with a statement, Hearken. See it in verse 1? Hearken unto me, ye that follow righteousness. Verse 4, hearken unto me, my people. Uh, verse 7, hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness. So there are three repeal, uh, appeals. Now we have three responses to those fervent appeals. And the response is found in, uh, in verse 9. Awake, awake, put on thy strength. It's the answer, you see. Yahweh appeals to them. Hearken unto me, ye that follow righteousness, ye that seek Yahweh, look under the rock. And how do we respond? Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O arm of Yahweh. Again, uh, you have it in verse 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which is drunk at the hand of Yahweh. And again, you have it at chapter 52 and verse 1. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments. See the beautiful way in which the, apostle, uh, the, uh, the prophet has done this. First three appeals, then you have uh, uh, three responses in that way. And you have three stirring messages of hope when you come uh, to the 52nd chapter. Because you see in verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains. And then in verse 9, break forth into joy. And then you have again in the, uh, the uh, verse 11, depart ye, depart ye, go out from thence. So you have three appeals to the people in chapter 51. You have three fervent responses that follow on. And now you have three stirring messages of hope. How beautiful upon the mountains. Bring forth, break forth into joy and depart, get out of Babylon. And so as the prophet is speaking of this in the, uh, in the uh, prophecies concerning 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we move on to his destiny. And this is shown from chapter 52, verse 13 onwards. In verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many as were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. The word really signifies, the verse really signifies that people were stunned at the terrible appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many were stunned at his. His visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. He prematurely aged in the Lord. You know, on one occasion the Jews said to him, look, you're not above 50 years of age, whereas actually it was only 33. But you imagine the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was brought out by Pilate, and Pilate brought him before the people, and there they saw the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw him bleeding from the thrashing he had received. They saw him bruised from the punching he had received. They saw that cruel crown of thorns on his head with blood possibly dripping down. They would see the spittle of the soldiers all on him. And the pilot brings him out to the people and he says, Behold your king. There's your king. They're stunned at his appearance. And you can understand that. Now, when you read verse 15, it's a point of comparison. As they were stunned at his appearance then, so are they going to be stunned in the future at his glory. In like manner, the word so there should be in like manner, shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths at him. For that which they had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. The stunning appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory is compared here with the appearance of him when he was offered, on the, uh, offered before the people 1,900 years ago. And you see, there we have the past and there we have the future in verse 15. And then you see it goes on and moves on as far as the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the atonement is concerned in this wonderful 53rd chapter of Isaiah that many people imagine is the best chapter in Isaiah, although I don't think so. But it is a wonderful chapter in Isaiah. And I think you may remember I told you that in the 27 chapters that you have in the second part of Isaiah from the historical interlude onwards, this is the very centre of it all, as though this is the heart and kernel of it all. And we read concerning the Lord Jesus Christ in this chapter as he is brought to the stake, and we stand, as it were, in the very shadow of the cross on that day. And we read, Who hath believed their report, and to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. No beauty in him. There was a beauty there, but it was a beauty of character. There was a beauty there, but the Jews didn't see it. There was a beauty there, but the father saw it, and he said, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. There was no robes of royalty there, no insignia of glory, no splendid retinue, no glorious display, 
but there was strength of resolve. Verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. So there was strength of resolve, and not only that, but there was complete fulfilment of prophecy. Verse 9, He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich of his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Now those words are not quite correct as they stand there, he didn't make his grave with the wicked at all. He made his grave with the rich. But here it says he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. But the Hebrew word made there is the word northan. And it signifies to be appointed. And those words should be rendered as this. His grave was appointed to be with the wicked, but he was with a rich man in his death. His grave was appointed to be with the wicked, but he was with a rich man and he's there. You remember how the Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus hastened to Pilate that they might take the body of the Lord. They craved the body of the Lord, it says. These two Pharisees went to Pilate and craved the body of the Lord. And when they took the body of the Lord, they buried the body of the Lord. They buried it in the tomb of, uh, of uh, 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 Joseph. They buried it in his tomb, the tomb of a rich man. And it says in the narrative that they consented not with the council of the Sanhedrin. And this is what the council of the Sanhedrin was, to burn him in the valley of Gehenna, to give him his grave with the wicked. And the wicked were buried in Gehenna. They were flung in the fires of Gehenna. So you see here the prophet is saying that though they might appoint his grave with the wicked, he'll be with a rich man in his death. And that, was, that overshadowed the events at that particular time. And one of the miracles of the, of the death of Jesus Christ, one of the miracles of the death of Jesus Christ is this, that where the Pharisees fled from his presence, two, where the apostles fled from his presence, two Pharisees endorsed their belief in him. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Two Pharisees. Two men of the Sanhedrin endorsed their belief in him. And as far as Nicodemus is concerned, he came out of the night and he came into the full glare of public opinion. And Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple. But now he came out boldly before them and they went and took the body of the Lord and buried them in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And do you know what that meant to them? That defiled them. They couldn't have partaken of the Passover that, through that. It disqualified them for taking the Passover. But you see, they knew that there was a greater Passover and that Passover was the Lord's Passover. And they realised as they saw the Lord upon the cross, um, Nicodemus would realise that as he hung upon the cross there was a fulfilment of what he had told him so early that he, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of God be lifted up to draw all men to him. And here was the first of them being drawn to him in two Pharisees. So here we, he was appointed his grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man in his death. We read in verse 11, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. What a wonderful word that is. He shall see the travail of his soul. What is travail? Travail is toil and pain that brings results that produces a new life. 
And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He saw the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Why? He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of Yahweh shall prosper in his hands. They said in verse 8, he's, he's cut off out of the land of the living. And who's going to declare his generation? He won't have any generation. He won't have any seed. But here we have it in verse 10. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. So you see in the transparency here, we have his destiny, his reception, his sufferings, his submission, and finally his reward. And... Uh, that moves on, of course, to the work of restoration. And chapter 54 speaks of the basis of this restoration. It speaks of the restoration. The barren that did not bear can cry out in singing because there's going to be a great influx in that day. We go to Galatians chapter 4, of course, and Paul deals with the allegory, which Isaiah now takes up. And the barren shall bear, because that barren represents Jerusalem above. And in verses 7 to 10 of that 54th chapter, you have Yahweh's everlasting love, such as will remove his wrath. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy upon thee, saith Yahweh thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah will never again go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be wroth nor rebuke thee forever. And there we have the glory, the hope for the desolate, and that which Yahweh will establish. And the fact that Jerusalem's future is assured. Look at that in verses 11 to 14 of that chapter. And look at verse 7 and read it personally to yourself, because this is your heritage. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh, and their righteousness is me, saith Yahweh. Now in chapter 55 there's refreshment for the thirsty. And what a glorious chapter this 53rd chapter is indeed. First of all you have there in verses 1 to 5 a call to satisfaction. Then in verses 6 to 7, a call to reformation. And finally in chapter, verses 8 to 13, a call to transformation. See the break up there. Satisfaction, reformation, transformation. And have a look at it. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come by and eat. Yea, come by wine and milk, without money and without price. I don't want your money. But notice the invitation is not given to everyone. It's only given to a few. Notice that. It's not given to the world at large. Understand that. It's not given to all. Who is it given to? The thirsty. A person that's thirsty. And you know the Lord Jesus Christ says, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. So it's limited to the thirsting. The thirsting can come to the waters, and they that have no money, they can come. But look, they've got to buy. They have to buy. They don't get it for nothing. You get nothing for nothing. You've got to pay for it. What are we going to pay for it, Lord? We've got no money. I don't want your money. What do you want? Give me your heart, my son. We've got to give him our time 
We've got to give him our energy. We've got to give him our heart. We've got to give him our love. And that's what he wants. He doesn't want money. And he says, Why spend money in verse 10? For that which is not bread and your labour for that which satisfies not. Hearken diligently unto me and eat ye that which is good and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear. Intense activity to understand his purpose. And come unto me, here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. A leader and a commander to the people. So there we have refreshment for the thirsty. There you have in chapter 56, you have of course there, the establishment of world worship. And finally in chapter 57, you have the promises to the repentant. The promises to the repentant in that particular chapter. And it points out in that particular place that their ultimate vindication will take place, those that are repentant. And that brings us to the last three chapters, I think. Yes, it brings us to the last three chapters of the future glory that is promised by Yahweh. Chapters, not the last three, the last three sections of the chapters. Uh, the future glory promised by Yahweh in chapters 58 to 66 and in chapters 58 and 59 what is required to attain it chapter 60 to 65 what it will reveal and the concluding challenge warning and promise in 66 and so in these wonderful chapters you have the, the, the excitation that is presented to you in chapter 58, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. Show my people their transgressions and the house of Israel their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me ordinances of justice. They take delight in, in, in approaching God. And they cannot understand why God doesn't take pleasure in them. That is verse 3. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our souls, and they take no notice? Because of your attitude. Because you find that in the day of your fast pleasure and exact your labours. And he tells them, that's not what I want. I don't want your worship. I don't want your sacrifices. I want your heart. And you see, the exhortation comes down to us, doesn't it? That we can, we can have a pseudo-worship. We can delude ourselves, as they did, that we are worshipping a right. It's like the words of Ezekiel the prophet, when he is told in the 33rd chapter of his prophecy there, when the people were coming and speaking about him, when they were convinced that what he said was true, in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 30, Thou, son of man, the children of thy people are talking concerning thee, not against thee, as in the text, concerning thee, by the walls and in the doors of the houses, and speak one to another, in public and private, saying, Come and hear what the word is that cometh forth from Yahweh. It's delightful. Come and hear the word of Yahweh. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words. But they won't do them, for with their mouth they show much love, and their heart goeth after their covetousness. And you are like a lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. They love to hear you, but they don't follow you. It's like me. I'm so fond of Beethoven's music. 
that I can't say at all, that I'm fond of it. And they were fond of that. And you know, we can be excited with that book. We can mark it up in such a way that we wonder what we've done. And we can do that and we can ponder it and not apply it. That's what he's saying there. And considering the supremacy of Yahweh, considering the glory before us, we've got to put into practice the principles of that wonderful book that we have here in this wonderful book. No doubt about that. We've got to do that. And if we do that, then we will be saved. And look at chapter 59. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shorter that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, and he will not hear. And he, and he gives a picture of the world in uh, verse uh, 14. Judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off, and truth is fallen into the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth. And look at this verse. He that departeth from evil is accounted mad. Look at the margin. Is accounted mad. Not maketh him a prey, as it is in the text. He that departeth from evil is accounted stupid. And Yahweh saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. And so he says, he's going to send his warrior. And that warrior is going to be an armoured warrior, capable of handling any forces that are set up before him. And so he says, he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his own arm brought salvation, his righteousness that sustained him. And he depicts the Lord Jesus Christ with the... A breastplate of righteousness, a helmet of salvation, and the garments of vengeance for clothing, and clad as zeal, with zeal as a cloak. And I think that the Apostle Paul, in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, got his picture, not from the Roman soldier that may have been standing by his side, but got his picture from Isaiah chapter 59, and called upon the brethren of Christ, to build into their lives the same principles as uh, we uh, uh, as is described in this particular chapter. So we go on, sweep unto the glory of the future in the 60th chapter. Arise, shine, for thy light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon thee. Darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. Not yet, because wherever there's an ecclesia, there's a chink of light. But when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and we're all gathered into his presence as we will be, complete and utter darkness will settle upon this world and the world will be given to its own resources. And then suddenly a blinding light, arise, shine, for thy light has come, for the glory of Yahweh has risen upon thee. And you know, in that wonderful chapter, it sees the Gentiles being drawn to that light. It sees Israel coming back in its fullness. It sees the Arabs converted. It sees the temple being built. It sees the sons of strangers assisting in this. It sees a vast change coming over the whole of that land. And look at the language. Verse 5, Then thou shalt see and flow together, or be radiant. With radiant face you will see them, says Moffat. <coughs> thy heart shall fear and be enlarged, or thy heart shall thrill, as some render it, and throb with joy. Your hearts will thrill and throb with joy because the abundance of the seas and some render that the wealth of the west. The wealth of the west shall be converted unto thee. The wealth that people glory in today then converted and given unto the Lord Jesus Christ 
For he says, The gold is mine and the silver is mine, and the glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former, and in this place will I give peace, is what he says through Haggai the prophet. And here we see it here. We see the Arabs converted and coming up and offering there. The sons of strangers building up the walls, and the walls built, and the temple erected, and the gates open, and people flocking in to worship at that place that today they curse the city of Jerusalem. And we read that that city will be called the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Jeremiah calls it the throne of Yahweh. Jesus Christ calls it the city of the great king. Zechariah calls it the city of truth, the holy mountain and the habitation of justice. What a change. No wonder Isaiah had the glory first and called upon us to do it. And no wonder as these chapters sweep on does he speak of this wonderful glory that will take place as he shows what it will reveal in that day. And look at this beautiful passage in verse 11 of chapter 61. As the earth bringeth forth her bud and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth. And we're reaching spring, aren't we? And we're seeing these things come forth. We're seeing the symbol of a resurrection. You imagine all the power exerted to bring those plants up. We don't hear it. No noise. We see it. We don't know how it's done even. We can't do it ourselves. The earth bringeth forth a bud, and the garden causeth the things that are the same for the silent working of the hand of the Creator. And as that happens, so he will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before Russia and Europe and America and Australia and New Zealand. Impossible. Just as impossible for you to plant that weed and bring it up in the way that Yahweh does. And you see, for Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, he goes on to say. And he sweeps on right throughout these chapters to the glory until we come to the 66th chapter. And we there learn of a, 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 the birth of two sons. Because in the 66th chapter and verse 7 we read, Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child who had heard such a thing who have seen such things. And that is talking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's talking about the manifestation of Christ, which took place before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. And a marvel that was, a wonder, a wonder that's never been seen. Who hath heard such things? Who hath seen such things? And then it's added to with another wonder. Equally as powerful and majestic shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day or shall a nation be born at once? So here's another resurrection, a resurrection in the future, a resurrection that is both personal and political, a resurrection of, a, of persons and a resurrection of a nation. And we're seeing the stirring of that nation today. Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. As soon as she travailed, not a protracted travailing, but as soon as the pains of childbirth come, she will be delivered. That's Israel after the flesh and Israel after the spirit. And we're watching the time at the present moment when the world is reaching that stage of travail 
And this world is going to reach that stage of travail. And when Russia makes it perfectly obvious that Russia is going to come down into the Middle East, then you will have that travail as never before. But at that time, she's going to be delivered of her children. Israel after the flesh, and Israel after the spirit. And they shall be brought forth. Shall I bring to the birth, saith Yahweh, and not cause to bring forth? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut up the womb? By no means. Do you think that nation there is there for Russia's benefit? Do you think it's there even for Israel's benefit? Do you think the world is going to be allowed to stop the development of that? The pain, birth pains of a new world order? Of course not. Yahweh says, I do that and I'm going to see that what I have established there will be accomplished. I will bring it forth. Therefore rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, although all they that mourn for her. And we're in that position, I think. And as we see the signs about us that speak so beautifully of the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we look for the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth referred to in the previous chapter in which shall dwell righteousness. May it be that in that day of glory that we shall be with the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be associated with him. And when we see these things realized, uh, uh, revealed in all the earth, that we will be able to respond in glory and happiness to him that made it all possible. Because by our own discipline of our life now, we will share in that glory that will be revealed then.